Welcome to the Sage Thought Leadership Podcast. Experience support for confident business makers. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Ed Kless, and with me today is Charles Lubar. Charles is a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School and holds a master's degree in taxation from Georgetown Law. For two and a half years, he worked in the chief counsel's office of the Internal Revenue Service in Washington, D.C., he spent 34 years as a partner for a global law firm, Morgan Lewis. Lubar also recently served as a senior counsel at McDermott, Will, and Emory. He was born and raised in Washington, D.C. He spent two years as an entrepreneur in Nairobi, Kenya, and has been a resident of London, England since 1971. Over 50-plus years of international tax practice in London, he has represented a substantial number of well-known entertainers with respect to their international tax and other issues, including Michael Jackson, The Muppets, and several contributors to James Bond films. Welcome to the Sage Thought Leadership Podcast, Charles Luber. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be part of your your system of podcasts. (laughs) Well, Charles, tell me, why did you do what you do? Especially maybe, why did you go to Nairobi, Kenya? Okay, that's actually a good starting question. Um, I was practicing the Chief Counsel's Office of the Internal Revenue Service, a very high-profile job. A little bit bored. Um, I had a four-year commitment, and this was about two and a half years in. Uh, I got excited about post-independence Kenya because I was involved in a diplomatic program in Washington, D.C. My first wife was co-chairman of a a young adults program for diplomats under 40. Uh, The chairman was a friend of ours, um, and she was married to a Kikuyu, which is the tribe of Jomo Kenyatta, the subclan, even the subclan of Jomo Kenyatta, Kiambu Kikuyus. And he was a fascinating character, getting a PhD in political science, broadcasting in Swahili, Voice of America, teaching African politics at the University of Virginia. But all he wanted to do was to go into business when he got his PhD. So I got intrigued with the history of post-independence Kenya. And this guy was a pretty compelling human being, And we agreed um, to set up a little Kenyan corporation to do some things that he had identified as as interesting entrepreneurial activity. So I raised money with some crazy friends of mine in Washington, and I quit the Internal Revenue Service and moved to Nairobi with a wife and a 12-week-old baby to try to really provide an, uh, a role for the African on, entrepreneur as he was taking over from the Indian. And we built houses, we got into small-scale manufacturing, and it was, it was pretty exciting. It was very difficult to do, uh, to really build up a business in, in Black Africa at the time and the, these emerging um, countries that had gained independence mostly from the British, sometimes from the French. And I did it for a couple of years, and I, but I was not, however, prepared to spend the rest of my life in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, and so I thought I really had to leave uh, two years down the line. And uh, then even I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, but I did have some contacts in Europe. My first wife was prepared to experiment again in Europe uh, to see what happened. And I was fortunate enough in finding an unusual boutique law firm uh, that was run by two Americans, that was setting up by two Americans. One was a corporate transactional lawyer, and the other was a famous entertainment lawyer. 
And they literally, as I say, hired me off the streets as their tax lawyer uh, to help build, help build a practice. And that was in 1971. And uh, I, Worked with them for several years, built up a practice um, uh, inside the uh, the uh, corporate entertainment firm, a little bit of a tax practice on foreign people moving, living and working in the UK, Americans living and working in the UK, some UK people going outside. And I had ended up with a big dosage of exposure to the entertainment industry, certainly uh motion pictures first, films, then television, and then eventually uh, much in the music world. So, Which leads me to your book. So tell me about your book, um, An Improbable Journey, Music, Money, and the Law. It's improbable because most people that had my sort of targeted lifestyle uh, usually parlayed that into going into going into Wall Street or going into the government or something like that. And I quit and I did something crazy. Uh, and I thought I would be treated as doing something crazy by my contemporaries. But in fact, it was the opposite. They they thought it was pretty exciting. And they they supported me in, in their own way. But they it was an introspection into their own lives because they would say something like, Gee, that's so exciting. I wish we could have done something like that. But I owe school debts. I have I got married early. I had a kid. I or I didn't have the nerve to do it. So anyway, um what happened was I I got involved in doing so much entertainment work. Um I eventually decided to set up my own practice. So I split off from this little firm, set up my own in, independent practice. As really a uh, an international tax lawyer with some specialty in cross border problem solving, and that was everything from Americans living and working in the UK, uh, foreign entertainers coming to the UK to perform, um, and and some was straight corporate work, American companies doing business abroad, uh, and that's what I did for six, seven years when I was approached by one of the major uh, law firms in the United States, Morgan Lewis, out of Philadelphia. And I they asked me to set up their first office outside the United States, which is quite an honor, but I wasn't sure I wanted to do it until I met some pretty exciting people inside the firm, all of whom were different, but shared the same drive to build Morgan Lewis as a practice outside the United States. So I joined, I merged my practice, joined them, and I ran the, well, ran the office for most of the 34 years I was uh, with them, and then finally retired. Um, I, I retired at 74, but I still wasn't finished with my legal work, and I joined then um, a very fine boutique uh private client practice in London, but part of a big, Amer another big American firm called McDermott, Will & Emery. Maury Lewis was out of Philadelphia. McDermott was out of Chicago, but they both had offices in, in London. Anyway, as a result of that, I, I got involved in, uh, in some pretty interesting stuff, which was the theme, which turned out to be the reason I did the book. 
Uh, well, talk I mean, a little bit. About, talk a little about your work with the Muppets. Ah, okay. Well, I set the Muppets up in the United Kingdom. Uh, Jim Henson had uh, all of Muppet characters, which he had licensed to Sesame Street, a very successful program in the United States. He wanted to set up his own television series, but he couldn't find anybody in the United States who would finance it. So I don't know how he got the contact, but he got into contact with Sir Lou Grade, a big entrepreneur in the UK who owned a big or controlled a big communications group, including um, a television group. And he was willing to finance the Muppets for a year. But of course, um, structuring something for the Muppets, which means <laughs> structuring something for 30 puppeteers in situations where they didn't just wave their fingers through a, a, you know, a puppet, but they maybe dealt with the arms and legs or maybe wrote scripts and did different participations in, in building the programs. Um, so I had to figure out how they were taxed uh, and I negotiated lots of uh, arrangements with the Internal Revenue Service to deal with the taxation of puppeteers, including Miss Piggy. And, you know, uh, and at the same time, I had to do the corporate structuring, which was setting up a, a foreign business for the Muppets um, through their parent company, the Henson Associates. So that was a, and I did. Uh, that was a good job, I think. I mean, it was one of my earliest complex structuring, and we did it in a way that basically moved most of the value of what we did, which was the would have been the copyrights in the underlying uh, shows, uh, back to the United States, where there was a much more tolerant, uh, less oppressive tax regime. Uh, so that was that was one. And then, actually, there is an interesting story here. Uh, after I, we did the Muppet Show, uh, I was asked by the general counsel to do some structuring for a couple of films. Uh, you may remember the first Muppet movie was a rounding, rousing success, and um, so they asked me to set the structuring up for that, as lo along with the structuring for a, a flight of fancy of Jim Henson the founder of the Muppets, uh, he had, had an interest in a weird, dark film called The Dark Crystal. So I figured, and this, this I think was the right reading at the time, that we would do The Dark Crystal in the United States because it had a big budget and it was very unlikely to be successful. So we would say, okay, Jim, you've had your flight of fancy and you can write off all the costs against your income in the U.S., but the second Muppet movie was a guaranteed success because the first Muppet movie was so successful. So I set up a complicated structure through the Netherlands Antilles and a Dutch company and a production in London. And it was really designed to move whatever profit element there was outside the United States and not immediately taxed unless brought back into the United States. Of course, and as I like to tell on myself, I got it completely wrong. My business strategy or my tax strategy interfered with the realities of the business world. And the second Muppet movie bombed. So I had my losses outside the United States and 
The Dark Crystal turned out to be the sleeper film of, I think, 1982 and made a fortune. So I tell that on myself because despite whatever sophistication was involved in tax strategy, you still have to get a little lucky and sometimes a little prophetic in the business world. And Charles, we have an exit question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, who's a hero of yours and why are they a hero? I guess I'd say Miss Piggy is a hero, <laughs> heroine, <laughs> because she was hysterically funny. Um, she knew how to seduce men. <laughs> well, in fairness, I don't really have any heroes. I, I think people have affected my life quite a bit. And I have a lot, I had a lot of respect from people like my father, for one, who, who taught me how to, I think he gave me a good sense of what I would call personal democracy, which is dealing with people um, based on their individuality rather than anything that otherwise described them, whether that was race, religion, uh, ethnic background, or the, the nature of the way they grew up themselves. Um, so it gave me a, that sense of personal democracy, which has been really good for me, I think, over the years that I've been abroad, because I've been abroad over 50 years. And some of the people I met were, were at first blush, um, maybe maybe questionable in the eyes of the, the public, like my Russian, my um, African partner was a former Mau Mau who helped, um, it was a child, but that was the revolution against um, British uh, colonialism. And they have a, you know, had a pretty torrid reputation, but you know, this is a guy I went into partnership and trusted him with my life, you know? And, and, and the same thing was, you know, true, true of others. I mean, I represented a couple of the great pornography store, stars, 70s and 80s, Linda Lovelace and Marilyn Chambers, and, and their common husband, uh, Chuck Trainer. And you'd say, well, you know, how could you represent those kind of people and so forth? But the reality was, there, there was some real talent and some real humaneness in both Linda Lovelace, in terms of her humaneness, and Marilyn Chambers, in terms of her talent, she was a, she was an off-Broadway actress. She wrote her own material for a lot of stuff. She just made her income um, from hardcore pornography. Well, I didn't hold that against her. Um, <laughs> go and, ahead. and lastly, Charles, how can somebody contact you? Oh, okay. Well, first, the book you can get, and it's a pretty entertaining read. I mean, there's I, I haven't I've barely touched on it. I have been in you know done a lot of stuff for a lot of different people in the entertainment industry and other other fields. But you can get it on Amazon. It was released already in the United States uh, June 20th, and it'll be re released August 17th here in the UK. Um, if you want to reach me, I mean, I, I have actually retired uh, as a lawyer with McDermott, Will & Emery, but I do have an email if people want to contact me and have any questions about it. Uh, the, the easiest would be charleslubar at gmail.com. All right. Charles Lubar, thanks so much for being a guest on the Sage Thought Leadership Podcast. I'm happy to have had a good time with you. <laughs> okay. 
review and subscribe by searching your podcast player of choice for Sage Thought Leadership Podcast.